Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week, well, this week is a little different. I'm joined not by an author, but by two luminaries and linchpins of the horror community. Sadie Hartman, aka Mother Horror, and Emily Hughes of Tor Nightfire and Other Assorted Realms. They're here to add their expertise to whatever I pretend is my expertise, and and together we're going to look back over the year in horror so far. 2021 has already been a blindingly good six months for the genre. As we'll get into, there have been far too many highlights to feasibly fit into a single podcast episode, even one that stretches to nearly two hours, as this one does. But we do our best to map the highs, resolve some controversies, but more than anything, to celebrate the fact that horror is back in force, with a new spring in its step, a sharper blade in its hand, and evil things on its mind. This episode is a bumper issue though, so let's not waste any more time on my ramblings. Come with me to a theoretical library where all the books have bent spines, blood-red pages, and black, black words. Let's talk scared. Well, hi, Emily, and hi, Sadie, and welcome to Talking Scared. Hi. Hello. It is wonderful to be the, be here. Thank you for having us. No, thank you very much for joining me. It's a bit of a dream come true. It's me sitting here talking to two actual experts in the field about the year so far in horror. I think the best thing to do to start off with is to get you guys to introduce yourselves, because as I've just been saying off air, you have far, far better credentials than me to comment on the year so far in horror. But tell my listeners, they probably already know, but for the for the six somewhere in outer Mongolia who don't know who you guys are, tell them like what you do in relation to horror fiction. If, if we can start with you, Sadie. Okay. Um, my name is Sadie Hartman, Mother Horror on social media. I actually write uh, horror book reviews. Uh, I think that's mostly where people know me from is I write uh, reviews for Cemetery Dance Online, also um, Scream Horror Mag in the UK. Um, That's a published uh, magazine bi-monthly. I am also the co-owner of Nightworms, which is a monthly horror subscription package. Uh, We send, you know, horror fiction every month to our subscribers and you know, we just started that about two years ago. So we're, we're going into our, our third year of business. Um, and I also am a member of the Horror Writers Association. I write articles sometimes for Lit Reactor and also Tor Nightfire, which is where Emily is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, I'm Emily Hughes. I am currently the site editor for TorNightfire.com, which is the um, publisher agnostic website uh, focused on all things horror, not just books, but movies, TV. We're even about to start a, uh, a horror music column about sort of the way that horror influences various musical genres. And that site is, you know, owned and operated by Tor Nightfire, which is Tor's new imprint launching this fall for horror books. I ostensibly run a personal newsletter about horror books. It has been a minute since I updated it, but I am hoping to get back to that soon. And I'm also a Horror Writers Association member. (laughs) 
Well, there you go, guys. Hence why I said better credentials than me. I spent years thinking I was, an, I was a horror expert and then came to the realisation that I basically have read a lot of Stephen King, a lot of Peter Straub and a few other people, whereas Sadie and Emily have an encyclopedic knowledge of everything from the smallest indie presses up to the, the bestsellers. And I've got to say a special thank you to Emily as well, because quite frankly, without her, her yearly list of the horror to look for in the year ahead, I wouldn't know where to begin scheduling all the authors we have on this show. I remember when it got to December and you hadn't brought it out yet and I was starting to panic. <laughs> I, think I, I think I actually wrote to you saying, Emily, when is, when is it being released? I need to know who's who's writing books. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I have actually already started on my 2022 list um, just because things will come up. You know, people will announce books on Twitter. I will start seeing things pop up on NetGalley and Edelweiss and publisher sites and... I figure, you know, why do that work again in January when I can start doing it now? <laughs> um, but honestly, I started compiling that list as a resource for myself. And then I realized, you know, this this doesn't seem to exist anywhere in a in a really overarching and, and sort of cohesive way. You can search, let's say, you know, Amazon by genre, but you're getting reissues and you're getting foreign or special editions of things that have been out for years or new formats. And it can be really, really hard to separate out what is actually new. So I figured, you know, this works for me, maybe it'll work for other people. And I'm so glad it's useful to you. Oh, I use it all the time. Yeah, it's an incredible service. Ashley and I consult it when we're putting together our themes and our packages. And I consult it when I'm looking to do um, book reviews and to just go back and be like, oh, when was that book coming out? You know, I try to time out my reviews, you know, by the clock. So it's an incredible resource. Oh, good. And the flip side is of this is that no one reads more horror books than Sadie. I follow her on, on Goodreads and it's frankly staggering how many books and pages she gets through. <laughs> I feel so validated when you say that because there are readers um, in my circle on Bookstagram who I feel are running circles around me. So, I mean, that feels like an awesome compliment. Like, hey, I'm doing a good job. Um, but I mean, honestly, like it's not really a competition. Like I try to remind myself, like it's not how many books that you're reading, but, you know, how many that you're able to like really, really identify with and and allow them to just speak into your life, you know, as a reader, instead of just kind of like plowing through as many as possible. Yeah, my, my issue with Netflix and with Goodreads and anything that lets you create a, a, a watch list is it, it turns art into a process and into a, a tick box. And I found myself going on Netflix, for example, and watching movies, not because I want to see them, but to, 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 I've got this obsession with clearing the list. Mm. And I'm just like, that, that, that is not a healthy way to imbibe art. So, yeah, I think when, when you see these people who have kind of gamified Goodreads a little bit, I, I do wonder sometimes if they've kind of lost the, the original point of what this is all about. Mm -hmm. um, I have a very love-hate relationship with my annual Goodreads reading challenge. <laughs> uh, yeah. um, <laughs> I never meet it. But it's just sort of a, I've started to use it, look at it more as a, um, 
just a guide for how I'm doing. You know, have I had any big lapses? Uh, and I'm trying not to beat myself up when I don't meet it. You know, I look at people like my husband, who has also worked in the publishing industry, um, and he, you know, is very busy. He owns a startup, so he's very busy with other things right now. But he, at some point, he took some time and he inventoried all of the books we own that he wanted to read that he hadn't read yet. And he put them all on a spreadsheet and assigned them numbers. And he uses a random number generator to pick what he's <laughs> going to read next. Wow. And I, I admire that immensely. And it is also completely foreign to my <laughs> just entire relationship with reading. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's really cool. I, I've kind of got the tiger by the tail with my reading now, because I, I have to read at least a book a week in order to keep abreast of the, the podcast. So I don't really ever get to take time off. And I've realized that that was okay during a global pandemic, but now I have a social life again. And <laughs> for example, I have like a stag do this weekend. And then next week I've got Grady Hendrix and I'm like, oh shit, when am I going to find the time <laughs> to read like um, like my best friend's exes and the one I haven't read of his, like what am I going to do? So, so yeah, I, I, if I ever get ill, I don't know what's going to happen because I am on I am on an absolute helter skelter at the minute of having to read every single day. Anyway, this is me complaining too much about what is essentially a really good problem to have. <laughs> Preamble over. We're here today to look back over the first six months of 2021 and to talk about some highlights and things that have stuck out for us this year as being particularly good. We don't want to dwell on negativity. There's enough of that in the in recent history. So we want to talk about good things today, really. Not not books we haven't enjoyed, books we've really enjoyed. Uh, and, and anything else that comes up. So I, I think the, the best thing to, the best place to start is to acknowledge that these are strange times. And to a lot of people, reading horror as voraciously as we do in the middle of a, a global horror story that we're all living may seem an odd thing to do. Um, I've given up trying to, trying to articulate to my wife why I would read a book about, about a pandemic right now because she just doesn't get it. But yeah, it's been, a weirdly strong year for horror, considering what's going on in the world. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. For sure. <clears throat> horror has always been like my go-to method of escapism. So it isn't a foreign concept to me to consider diving headlong into a book in order to kind of distract myself from what's going on. And so like in the early stages of the pandemic in 2020, I would read whole novels in a day to the point where my eyeballs were protesting and, you know, not, not um, supporting me. So I just feel like if I could go someplace else, which we were stuck in our home. So, you know, that, that means of like trying to get out of my current context into something else. Books is that vehicle for me. My husband was um, not quite yet. Um, um, what do they call furloughed from his job yet? So he was an essential worker um, for the first part of the pandemic for like three months. Um, and so it was just my son and I at home because he wasn't going to school. Um, and I would find myself just watching too much news or doom scrolling on Twitter. And in order to give myself a break and to give myself some peace, I would just go become, you know, a fictional character in some other world and just uh -huh. let everything disappear. And that's how reading has always been for me. 
And horror has been for me over the past few years as I've sort of crystallized, you know, going, okay, this is really what I enjoy reading, what I resonate with, what I find compelling. Um, You know, I've sort of grown more and more into that mode over the last few years. And then, you know, I found myself sitting at my, uh, at the used bookstore where I was working early last year, just as we were starting to see COVID coming on the horizon reading a review copy of uh, Survivor Song by Paul Tremblay, which not only is it about a pandemic, it's about a pandemic in Massachusetts where I live. <laughs> um, so I was, uh, I was, I did have a moment of, oh my God, why am I doing this? And then I thought, well, I'm doing this because it's exposure therapy, right? I'm doing this because it makes me think about uncomfortable situations. It makes my sort of, it's it's like a test run for your nervous system, right? Okay. I'm afraid of, you know, it, when I was young, I was really afraid of sharks. Just absolutely, you know, no logic to it. I was terrified of sharks. I would take a shower and I would be afraid that a shark was going to come and eat me while I was in the shower. You know, it was ridiculous, but all I wanted to do was watch Jaws. It's all I wanted to do. And my mom kept saying, are you sure? And I said, yeah, I, I, you know, it thrills me. It it compels me. It's what I want to pay attention to. And that was kind of the beginning of it for me. And this year has just been, you know, I, I you mentioned those year in horror lists that I do. Last year, I think we had about 100 in 2020 on that list. This year, it's already almost 200. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> So there's just been, I think we're starting to see, because publishing operates on on something of a delay, um, I think we're starting to see publishing realizing two, three, four years ago that horror was going to be a thing, again, um, was going to have an uptick that, you know, we're starting to see those books hit the market now. And I think that is wonderful. It's a great time to be a horror fan. Yeah, it is such a great time. It's quite a promising time to be someone who's trying to write their first horror novel as well, like I am, and just thinking, like, please get it done before the bubble bursts. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, part of it is that we've seen this wonderful uptick in indie horror, which Sadie is is much more well-versed in than I am, but I've sort of been learning a lot about that over the past couple of years. And I think that, you know, even if the, the horror, horror bubble bursts, as you say, which I don't really think it will, but but the landscape is so diversified now that I think you're always going to be able to find that audience. Yeah, I agree with that too. And I think that indie fiction is seeing such a huge uptick because, you know, the traditional horror market is doing so well. So it just kind of like, you know, the big waves are lifting all the boats. So it's very exciting to watch that happen. Do you think indie horror goes places that mainstream publishing isn't willing to go? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I would sort of say yes. Um, And I say this as someone who is sort of constantly trying to push the boundaries of what frightens me. And the, the really extreme stuff I have found that I've gone like, wow, I've never read anything like this before, is more often than not by indie authors, indie publishers... I think big publishing houses are still, and you know, I, I work for Tor, all opinions here are my own, all the standard disclaimers. Um, but I think the big houses really tend to, as they're dipping their toe back into horror, I think they are leaning towards more, you know, what we call quote unquote literary horror, which obviously is a 
problematic term, but as a shorthand, I, I think you both know what I mean. Uh, but I want to see more extreme stuff. I want to see more splatterpunk. Uh, I want to see more stuff like Gretchen Felker Martin's Manhunt, which comes out in early 2022 uh, from Nightfire, which is I'm, I'm in the middle of the final manuscript right now. And it is gory, extreme, like violent, wonderful, and something that I had sort of given up on on seeing from big houses. But I'm really excited that that I am seeing it now. Great Koba. <laughs> It is a very striking cover. Yes. Yeah, everyone everyone, go and check out that cover now and, um, yeah, prepare yourself. Uh, I mean, that, that helps us segue into a, a bit of a recent controversy that I think is, is worth giving a moment's time to. I don't want to get bogged down because, as I said, I want to keep this light and positive. But that novel, um, forgive me, what is the author's name again? I know the book is called Manhunt. What, what's the author's name? Gretchen? Gretchen Felker Martin. I know that she was instrumental personally to me recently in in a conversation about trigger warnings, about content warnings, about all these things that have become such a flashpoint in the horror community in the last few weeks. And I know we wanted to kind of address that a little bit and talk about how it's maybe a more nuanced issue than people on either side of the divide uh, are potentially treating it as. Does anyone have any thoughts on that? Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) I mean, just right out of the gate, can we just talk about the fact that social media has been an amazing instrument that we get to use to communicate with one another, but has also been weaponized. And it is far too easy for people to have access to authors and publishers in a way that they've never had before, which is both good and bad. I mean, this trigger warning and content warning conversation, you know, 20 years ago, wouldn't be happening this way. It would be, you know, happening over emails from concerned readers or, you know, maybe a phone call or some kind of like protest, like a physical (laughs) out the door (laughs) kind of protest or, you know, happening on the level of like libraries. And I'm just trying to visualize how it would be happening without uh, social media and and Twitter and social platforms like Facebook and Instagram and stuff. Um, where everybody can have an opinion within seconds and this almost like snowball effect. Um, so what you know we've all seen has been just kind of like, I don't know, a whirlwind of conversation. It's really hard to follow over across you know lots of platforms and lots of opinions and lots of voices. But I think for myself, um, I tweeted, I think it was over the weekend on the 19th or something, and I just, said that writers need to write what you want to write and readers can read what they want to read. Readers don't tell writers what to write because you don't have to read it. And writers don't worry about what readers want to read because you don't have to write it. And that just kind of boiled it down for me. I was trying to make sense and grapple with what are we actually talking about here? And it's almost like the readers are trying to influence writers and publishers as to what is concerning to them and what they want and what they need, which is fair. But I think on the other hand, writers and publishers are trying to communicate that they have trauma and they have feelings and they have opinions and they need to do what they want in their artistic space as well. So it's like, what does it boil down to? It boils down to the fact that readers don't have to read what they put out and authors don't have to necessarily be told how to do what they're doing for me. And 
there's all kinds of nuance to that as well. And I'm not in the business of producing books in that format, in that way. I can just do what I want to do, basically. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, I'm not a writer that has to make that decision. I'm not a reader that has to, you know, my my reading opinion is my own. I didn't involve myself in that conversation. But anyway, I'm rambling. Well, I, I agree with Sadie. I I really think that it's a conversation that is important and should not be had on Twitter <laughs> um, for, you know, reasons that any number of people smarter than me have have articulated much better for years, which is that, you know, the conversation on social media is fragmented and it goes through context collapse where one group of people who are talking to each other on top of the basis of like a certain level of shared expertise run into people who don't have that expertise, who are, who have a totally different perspective and different understanding of the conversation. And it's, it's like, you know, you're having a conversation up here and everybody else is having a conversation sort of over there and everyone's just overlapping in a weird way that makes things tense and difficult. That said, when it comes to trigger warnings and content warnings, I am entirely in favor of them. And I think that any time an author or an editor or a publisher says, you know, hey, I think we should should do content warnings for this book, as long as the author is in support of it, as long as it's voluntary, I'm entirely down for that. But as so many people pointed out over the weekend, especially uh, authors from marginalized demographics, you know, they can sort of be used as a as a as a cudgel against those authors um, when it comes to, you know, this idea of like, oh, let's have a centralized trigger warning database, which um, I, I sort of get why people went there. You know, we all have we, we all know about, you know, does the dog die dot com for for movies. Um but a lot of those sort of self-reported things are are inaccurate. And I think that if an author wants to extend that courtesy to their readers, that's wonderful. I don't think they should be obligated to. I don't think that they should be, you know, shunned or piled on or anything on social media if they decide that that's really not something that they want to do. Um, I Mostly, I think everybody needs to log off and go outside. <laughs> yeah, maybe read a book. Yes, imagine. Yes. I mean, just to chip in there, I mean, I I agree with a lot of what everyone said. I I got a lot of very undeserved praise for basically, I tweeted something like, um, for years I've been against trigger warnings on books. And then I, in, in the wake of the conversation, I tried to kind of pin down why. And then I realized I had absolutely no coherent argument whatsoever. Uh, which is the truth, but that is not the same as saying that there isn't a coherent argument against them. Mm-hmm. I just don't have one, you know. Weirdly, you mentioned, that the, you mentioned the dog died in this one. It's such a trivial thing compared to some people's trauma, but but that's what has kind of changed my mind a little. So as people are probably on this show sick of hearing, I got a new puppy in the summer, and I'm in love with my dog, right? Like, he's my, I, I'm obsessed with this creature, and since I got him, if I read a book, and one, one of the books we're going to talk about today features um, things happening to dogs, um, if anything happens to an animal, I now struggle with it in a way I really didn't before. Like on a, on a visceral gut level, it upsets me. And it made me kind of realise, however trivial that may be compared to someone else's actual trauma, 
it made me realise that books beyond the fear that they're trying to evoke in the reader unintentionally can actually do emotional harm. And it made me realise maybe we do need to think about this trigger warning thing. But coming back to it, exactly as you say, real reservations about any kind of centralised database and it's got to be voluntarily. We, can, we can't start um, obligating authors and, and, and publishers in, in documenting the interior of, the, of their work. We, we just can't do that. It's got to be a, a, a two-way process where we meet in the middle. Yeah, and, and I think the entire, um, e- even just the word trauma or the phrase content warnings or the word triggered, um, those are all concepts that have really been susceptible to context collapse in, in the era of social media. So like trauma has a very specific, you know, psychiatric meaning and triggering has a very specific psychiatric meaning. And then, you know, that gets sort of adopted and flattened and and stripped of all that meaning uh, when it becomes overused. So I, I also have a, a tough time with books where animals are harmed or die. Um, but I also read everything Stephen Graham Jones writes, and that's something yeah. that you know that features a lot in his in his work. But like as I as I have tried to explain it when I've had this conversation before being triggered is entirely different than reading something you don't want to read. Mm-hmm. Reading something you don't want to read is, you know, not necessarily a pleasant experience, but it very well might be what you're signing up for when you read horror or when you even read mysteries or psychological thrillers um, or even science fiction and fantasy. But being triggered is a is an entirely different, like that is a trauma response. That is a, an emotional and and physiological emergency in your body that I think a lot of people don't necessarily sort of grok that that difference when we have these conversations on a flattened platform like Twitter. Yeah, I agree, Emily. Well, I, yeah, I, again, it's all about nuance, isn't it? Which just gets lost in the mix because you can't do nuance in 280 characters. Um, I think we've I think we've dealt with that well. We 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 faced it head on. We've not skirted it. We've said what we think, and I think let's not even talk about where the horror can happen in space. I can't revisit oh that particular <laughs> debacle. Um, let's jump into our highlights. You know, let let's be positive and let's talk about the good stuff that's happened this year. So, all I want to do really is, is run through. I think we've said three books each, and we can pick up any kind of also runs afterwards. This is the this is the meat of the episode, I suppose. Let, let's talk about the three books that have really spoken to us this year, kind of what they're about, why we like them, and, and why they spoke to us so powerfully. Sadie, would you would you like to start with your first pick? Sure. So um, my first pick, I think I'll go ahead and talk about Hearts Strange and Dreadful by Tim McGregor, published by Off Limits. I picked this book because, well, it came out earlier this year, so that's why I wanted to cover it first. Um, But I picked this book because it is the exact kind of storytelling that appealed to me when I was a younger reader. Um, So it has young protagonists in it that um, are easy to relate to um, and have a very specific kind of um, feel uh, when they're narrating the story, kind of like an accessibility and a comfort for me. It had like Little House on the Prairie vibes almost, which I used to read those 
Laura Ingalls Wilder books all the time, the whole series. And just that feeling of, you know, being out in the wilderness and mom, pa had to go out and hunt bears and be resourceful on the land and, you know, just that whole feeling. And then I listened to a lot of like supernatural podcasts too. Um, so this story combines kind of that life on the land and that prairie time with like a supernatural thing going on. Um, so if you could imagine like Laura Ingalls Wilder meets supernatural uh, podcasting stories where somebody is telling you about like in this specific instance, it's the tale of, it's hard to explain because I don't remember the exact word for it. And I was trying to like rack my brain while I was talking, but it's the story of like a vampiric, almost like disease ravaging through a township where they would bury the dead in order to stop this virus from spreading, but then the dead would reawaken and then feed on people, which is a very like real thing that happened. That's what I learned on this supernatural podcast is that this is like a thing that people were afraid of, you know, back in the day. And then this is a fictional development of that. So if you like young protagonists and if you enjoy slow burn um, through this whole township of trying to figure out, you know, why are people becoming ill and then coming back and harming us? It's like a really, really engaging, compelling story with like a kind of sleepy town gothic feel. Give us a title again. Sure. It's called Hearts Strange and Dreadful by Tim McGregor. That sounds like exactly my kind of thing. I haven't read it. A number of the books you're going to talk about today I haven't read, which is Shameful and embarrassing, uh, but that one is going to go straight on the list. I love small town horror more than pretty much anything else. Well, small town coming of age horror is the bullseye. Me too. Yeah. So I will definitely add that one to the list. And a historical fiction thing too. So I know that people who like historical fiction, that would appeal to you as well. Oh, awesome. Um, What about you, Emily? What's first on your list? Oh, well, first on my list is Goddess of Filth by V. Castro, um, which is a novella out from Creature Publishing earlier this year. Creature Publishing is a, a fairly new indie publishing uh, house based out of Brooklyn, I believe, and their focus is on feminist horror, uh, which I am obviously all about. Um, and it's a it's a novella and it's a wonderful sort of vital grimy little book about possession gone right um, <laughs> and something I look for a lot in horror is depictions of women's friendships because that's something you find in sort of commercial fiction and, and quote unquote literary fiction but horror has been you know sort of a male dominated field for a long time not you know not entirely but uh, and, and less so as we move through time. But um, V. Castro is such an engaging writer. Um, and it's the story of these friends who are, are, are again, it's, a, it's also a coming of age story. Um, they're all about to go their separate ways. And on their sort of, you know, last night of partying, they hold a seance. And one of the friends uh, starts acting strangely after said seance. And you know, her friends are concerned about her, her family is concerned about her, you know, there's a, there, you know, there's a religious element to it. And there's um, 
and in you know there's a an indigenous uh latinx element to it that's really fascinating i don't want to spoil it for for anyone who might be who might have their interest piqued by this but you know violet is a v castro violet uh, violet is a fascinating person and a fascinating writer um, and I think that anyone who is at all interested in coming of age stories, possession stories, really needs to pick this one up. Yeah, I love that one too, actually. I spoke to V. Castro, um, episode, I think it was 42, a few weeks back, um, about her new novel, Queen of the Cicadas. Um, that's the first time I've said cicadas correctly as well. I spent the entire episode pronouncing it incorrectly. <laughs> Yeah, and, and though I had my issues with that book, I just thought the ambition was incredible, right, to try and cram this entire cosmic mythology um, stroke, ghostly stroke, Candyman-style urban legend into essentially 220 pages of text. Um, and I've been meaning to check out Goddess of Filth, so I definitely will. I have a thing about possession narratives. A few weeks ago, I released an episode all about the things that really scare me. It was it was a Patreon only episode, um, and it, it turned out that most of the books that have really frightened me over the years have been to do with possession. Not quite sure what the root of that neurosis is, but it's something that gets under my skin in a big way. That's one for me too. Also, um, a head full of ghosts like creeped me out so bad that. There was a few times where I had to get up and check on my daughter just to make sure she wasn't like climbing the ceiling or, you know, <laughs> she wasn't speaking in a different language or something. It was it was horrifying. And I don't watch movies with possession either because they usually have like that body breakdown, you know, yeah, what I'm yeah. talking about with like, uh-huh. you know, just odd angles of the body. <laughs> and I really just can't. I can't with that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree. Um, Head Full of Ghosts, out of interest, actually made the, the very, very pinnacle of the list for scariest books I've ever read. Yeah, same. It is It is such a wonderful book. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Masterpiece. I Also, I, thinking back, I think I actually do know where the possession terror comes from with me. You ever seen the film The Exorcism of Emily Rose? I've heard of it. I wouldn't watch it. <laughs> so I've heard of it. it. It is definitely too scary for me. Yeah. There's a scene in that in which a guy wakes up and said Emily Rose, who may or may not be possessed, is at the foot of the bed in full-on contortion mode, bent around in all funny angles, as you say, Sadie. And I watched it with an ex-girlfriend of mine. The ex will make sense when I tell you that I woke up at 3am to find her in that position, smiling at me. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is cruel. Yeah. No. We, didn't, we, didn't, we didn't, didn't last for long after that. And ever since, I've been, I've, I've been marked by this terror of possession narratives. <laughs> yeah, that's terrible. Um, oh, it comes to me, doesn't it, for my support, my, my top three. Um, so what to talk about? I, I think the first book on my list is one of two, actually, which is, I suppose, tangentially horror or, or horror adjacent. Uh, and it's a book called Last One at the Party by Beth Clift. I I spoke to Beth about this, uh, I think, episode 28. Feel free to go and listen. She's great value. But it's it's simply a book about a woman who is the sole survivor, or is she, of a global pandemic of a disease called 6DM, which stands for six days maximum. And and what it what it does to your body in those six days is is not for the faint hearted, uh, and it's essentially like um, a sort of journey narrative of her travelling around a dilapidated post pandemic UK, 
trying to get her life in order. But but what's fascinating about it, people always say don't judge a book by its cover. Well, in this one, Hodder, who, who published it, ran with that and made a thing out of it because it looks like something written by Candice Bushel. It, it looks like a Sex and the City tie-in. It's, it's all pink sequin dresses and rainbow roads and champagne flutes on, on this front cover. And it looks like the trashiest piece of crap you've ever seen in your life. And it's intentionally done that way to to lull you into this sense of security because what you're about to read is truly horrifying. And I, I don't think Beth even knew how horrifying what she'd written was, but it, it disturbed me and, and also made me laugh out loud because it is essentially a story of this woman finding herself in the ruins of civilization. And it's, it, it's fist-pumping, laugh-out-loud funny, it's cynical, it's sweet, but there are scenes in it which will live in my head rent-free for years. Um, and me and Beth have become quite good friends, and she <laughs> apologises to me pretty much weekly now for a scene set in a zoo in which we find some animals that have been left behind when all the people are dead. And I have just never got over it. I, I The book ended, I sat up, I looked at my dog and burst into tears. Oh, man. Well, you sold me. <laughs> It is a brilliant book with a fantastic tone of voice. Um, she really balances the humour and the horror and, and uses each to make the other one better. Um, tread lightly because you're going to get more than you bargain for if you even glance at the cover. I think it's the start of a, of a serious career that will probably tiptoe in and out of horror. I don't see being a horror writer forever, but I think from what she's done in, in Last One at the Party, she'll never move that far from the horrific. It's It's brilliant. Yeah, that sold me too. <laughs> Check it out. I'd love to know what you think of it. I really would. Because it probably didn't penetrate the US that much because it is a UK author and it's a very UK-centric novel. I know it's been published in the US now and it's been sold to like all kinds of territory. It's got a Netflix deals, all sorts happening with it. So it, it will at some point penetrate, but right now it probably hasn't. So, yeah. I officially just added it to my Goodreads list. So it's going to populate to Twitter and people are going to be like, ooh, what's this? <laughs> well there you go cheers beth check in the post please i know she listens to this send you check in the post uh back to you sadie okay back to me i am going to go with uh cynthia paleo's children of chicago um this is a retelling and i know that some people either really love or hate retellings um this is um kind of a riff retelling off of the Pied Piper fairy tale. Um, it's set in Chicago where Cynthia Palea lives. So there is kind of this love letter to Chicago, um, but also she's just very realistic about how she textures the city landscape and the, and the you know, vibe there. Um, I just want to say first, excuse me, let me back up. So just for the, just to set early expectations for this book, it's not YA. I have heard a lot of people talking about how it has kind of like a YA theme going, but it is um, kind of a modern police procedural thriller, if that appeals to you, uh, with a combination of horror and some magical realism. Um, so I was kind of uh, reminded of like Pan's Labyrinth in terms of classifying this book in the magical realism horror category. But she really does just set the stage um, for this detective who 
she's not like the most likable character. And that's also a debate that I find happens a lot on Twitter is like, do our protagonists have to be likable in order to get into the story and, and invest? And for me personally, I don't like to have perfect characters. I like flawed people. And so this character is very flawed. And we follow her through her family trauma, the passing of a father, you know, and she is investigating um, a series of murders that are happening in her city. Um, And I just recommend it for people who love true crime, police procedural thrillers and fairy tales, kind of like an urban setting and also some coming of age because there are children in it. So I mean, I I fell in love with it. I read it so fast. Um, the pace is really f- strong. Um, Cynthia's voice is um, measured, but also with the magical realism element, she really just goes there. Um, and so for people who like to tap into multiple genre blending, like a whole fantasy set in an urban setting, it's it's just really a lot of fun. I had fun with that book. Yeah, I enjoyed that one a lot. Yeah. I, I love the Pied Piper stuff. I think it's really creepy. Um, and I, I really just liked the, as you said, the measured tone yeah. of it and, and the blending of, of subgenres was good. I know Cena's had a bit of a hard time recently as well on Twitter. Um, so if you hear this, Cena, we, we love your stuff. Please keep doing it. Yes, we do. I totally second that. Back to you, Emily. So, you know, you have both just mentioned uh, genre bending novels or or stories and and that's a big draw for me many of if i if i look back and i think about my favorite books of the last 10 years or even longer they're the ones that aren't aren't easily categorizable um the the amount that i recommend uh the library at mount char by scott hawkins is you know and that book is is everything (laughs) thrown into a a blender and and you know blitzed and it's just wonderful um, but that's why I wanted to talk about Star Eater by Kirsten Hall. And uh, Neil, I apologize. You had said, you know, for these books, you wanted them all to be things that were on sale at the time of recording. And I'm, I'm cheating just a hair because this book goes on sale tomorrow, um, June 22nd. <laughs> and it is... By the time this airs, it'll Perfect. be fine. We've got three weeks grace period, so Perfect. that's fine. <laughs> um, Kirsten is a writer who I am fascinated by i i think that the inside of her brain must be uh the most fucked up wonderful place imaginable this is her debut novel she had a novella out from tour.com a couple of years ago called the border keeper um the novel star eater is a wild dark fantasy about a city that floats in the sky or it's not a city it's a country that floats in the sky above sort of a a wasted landscape a wasted haunted landscape and it is kept afloat my my cat has entered the chat it is (laughs) it is kept afloat by the sort of ruling order of cannibal nuns who uh you know rule the land and um it's a matrilineal society based on cannibalism where they derive their power from and their magic from basically eating bits of their mothers uh and it is immensely weird and creepy and there's some kind of a virus that if if these nuns uh have sex with a man 
the man can contract this virus that turn, basically mutates him into like a horrible, uh, murderous creature uh, that then they have to, you know, capture and throw off the edge of the floating country, which is delightful. And it is a fascinating book. There's a bit of a love triangle. There's a bit of, you know, there's a bit of sort of bureaucratic intrigue, you know, some, some strong body horror elements. And I couldn't get enough of it. I read it, you know, it's, it's 400 pages plus, And I read it in a weekend, could not put it down. And I think that anyone who likes horror and likes their horror a bit sort of outside the box really needs to take a look at Kristen Hall's work. Yeah, that sounds like it's got a bit of everything, but you, you had me at cannibal nuns. it's you know it's a great hook right you go okay i want to know more (laughs) yes you ever read neil gaiman's neverwhere oh yes yeah when you find out that black friars are actually just like cannibal monks and and that sounds similarly kind of fantasy horror weird which is it's a kind of crossover genre i haven't really read anywhere near enough of i read a bit of angela slatter this year and that that dipped my first kind of toe into that blending of dark fantasy and horror and where does one end and one begin and et cetera, et cetera. But this one, Starry, sounds a little bit darker than that. So yeah, it sounds like one definitely to check out. Yeah, good wreck. There are, there are some legitimately frightening sequences in it that I am still thinking about, you know, six months later. Um, and it's one of those things where I I love when a sequence like that sneaks up on me in a book where I'm not necessarily expecting it. And suddenly I'm reading something that's terrifying and I'm like, oh, OK, this is I like that surprise factor. Well, as always, all these books will be added to the show notes. If you if you miss a title or you, you know, you flip on or you forget, it's all there to check out the books we're talking about. But to continue, well, to complete the 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 trio of sort of horror adjacent, I suppose we could call them novels. I would go to um, Will Dean's The Last Thing to Burn, which may well be, and I don't say this lightly, the best book I've read. I was going to say this decade, but we're at the start of the decade. So let's just pick an arbitrary period of time in the last five years. It was a book I wasn't going to feature on the show, Hodder actually came to me and said, we've got this book now. And I thought it read too much like a thriller. And I knew that Will Dean wrote kind of procedural setting in Scandinavia. I didn't quite see the fit, but I thought, who am I to turn down guests? Um, So I said, yeah, sure. Read the book and it absolutely took the top of my head off. Again, it's very localized to its region in in the UK. It's set in in East Anglia, which is basically the wetlands of um, the UK old kind of reclaimed farmland, very bleak, very lonely, um, reclusive part of the country. And it features two characters, one, a farmer called Len, and the woman called Jane, that's not her real name, but it's what he calls her, who he keeps and won't let go. It's been described as Emma Donoghue's room meets Stephen King's misery. Ooh. But it, it is so... I won't say so much more than both because I love both those books respectively. I think Misery is an all-time classic, but it completely and utterly is deserving of the comparison. Um, it's it's tense in a way that nothing else I've read has been in a long, long time. It's the new benchmarking kind of slimline, rapier-sharp tension. Mm. It doesn't let up. It doesn't. It doesn't waste a word. It's I read it. I read it in two sittings. 
it makes you hate this man who is never described physically and Will, Will Dean builds this man's entire persona through the words he says and the local idioms and the things that make him quintessentially British and from a certain generation. So he's a very, very localised, very specific monster. And it it's just the most thr- purely thrilling book I've read in years. Gosh. Yeah, that that is it's not it's not fake praise. The minute anyone says I recommend a book, I just say that. Like you have to read it. And everyone I've given it to has read it in one or two sittings and been like, this is incredible. I mean, gosh, Neil, you really know how to sell books. Like I'm just sitting here listening to you on both of your books so far, and I'm just like, shit, I wanna get off of here and read it right now. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I've been trying to get a part-time job in publishing recently, so I may just send this podcast to Penguin and say, listen to this, I'm quite good at it. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah, honestly, have you have either of you heard of that book? No, not at all. I have heard of it, but it you know, when I when I'm sort of doing research for these new release lists, I have to sort of make a judgment call based on the marketing copy for a book on on whether or not I, I reads to me as horror or horror adjacent. And I'm someone who takes a very broad view of what counts as horror, but with thrillers, especially, it can be uh, tricky to determine, you know, what's horror, what's not. And I had come across this book and I'd gone like, I don't, I don't know, just from what I'm reading, I'm not sure if it's horror, but this is wonderful to know, you know, that I need to go back and take another look at it. It sounds great. I think it's out from Simon and Schuster in the U.S., yeah, it's Atria, um, and yeah, and from Hodder again in the UK. Um, Emily, also when I added it on Goodreads, it said the Rita likes for that would be the last house on Needless Street. Perfect. Oh yes, <laughs> and that's that's a great example of a genre bending novel, and that's that's out from Tor Nightfire this this September um, from Katrina Ward, who is I I, I think she. I don't, can't remember if she's English or American, but she's lived in both places. And it's one of those real amalgams of mystery, thriller, psychological horror. And it's just, I, I, I know that uh, one of you had had it on the list to talk about later in the episode when we're doing our sort of preview, but it is just such a great read. And in fact, my microphone right now is sitting on top of a stack of galleys of it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we can address it now because... I can't believe that it hasn't made my top three list. I remember when I when I interviewed Katrina, I said to her, "This if this isn't in my top 10, something has gone badly wrong this year, and it will definitely be in the top 10, because it came out in the UK back in March, so we're on a bit of a time lag between the UK and the US. Um, and it, it it's no criticism of Last House on Needle Street that's not in this list. It's just that these other three books spoke to me that slight bit more. But yeah, I mean, it is... It is a game-changing horror novel, kind of in the same way that Tremblay's um, Head Full of Ghosts was a game-changing horror novel. It feels like Needless Street will be around and be discussed for years to come. And when we did the interview, <laughs> I always frank up with a whimsical title for the episode, and I just called it Katrina Ward and the All-Consuming Spoiler Warning. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's very accurate, yes. Yeah. There is essentially no way to really discuss that book without exactly, giving something exactly. away. You just have to read it. Yeah. And you have to read it to the end. Yeah. 
And I felt that way about her previous book as well, um, which I think came out in the UK as Raw Blood and in the US was The Girl from Raw Blood. Mm -hmm. I don't know that it really sold or got a ton of attention in the US, but I had come across it in the process of uh, doing some research on horror novels by women. And I read it and it is one of the most ambitious and audacious gothic horror novels that I have ever come across. It is... It, 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 it jumps between narratives, between timelines, between uh, voices in such a masterful way that I was like, how is this a debut novel? And I, I mean, I have no idea. She may have written other things first. And, and you know, uh, but it is a, it is basically a perfect book in my eyes. See, this is the first time we disagree. Really? Because of Raw Blood, I went into Needless Street with quite low expectations. I couldn't finish it. I've tried twice and I can't finish the book. Interesting. And it's quite rare that I can't finish a book. Um, I plough through to the bitter end, but it, that book just rejects me in some way. I don't know what it is. It happens. And I can only think it's that I, I think I spent years studying Gothic in all its vagaries. And I think I can kind of see the stitch work a little bit. And it to me, it reads like a parody of everything I've ever read. So when it came to Needless Street, I was like, oh my God, this is like, this is, there's there's no comparison for me. It's just, they they, they could be different authors, different everything. Got I it. just, I love Needless Street and Raw Blood left me cold. I will, I will say with Raw Blood, um, if you can bring yourself to try again, it is much like Needless Street, a book where when you get to the end it re it, it casts everything that came before it in a new light okay okay at some point i will because i love little eve as well like and you know everything she's done but yeah I'll, I'll try again i'll try again i i actually really love those books too where when you finish you almost want to start it over and read it again like that's its own category like i'm thinking of um I'm thinking of things before. What is that? Ian Reed. I'm thinking of ending things. I'm thinking of ending um, things. Come closer by Sarah Gran. Um, um, behind her eyes by Sarah Pimbro. Um, and the last house on Needless Street. I all, mm -hmm. I like. If it wasn't so long, I would have started it. Like I mean, not. It wasn't terribly long. It's not like a chunker, but I mean, it was long enough to where I was like, okay, I have other things to do, but I really want to go back and read that again. <laughs> knowing what i know now that should be the that should be the title of those that genre of books knowing what you know now <laughs> sadie would you like to write about that for the nightfire site i would love to <laughs> just off the top of my head i've got like six books floating around in there great perfect I bring people together <laughs> <laughs> Sadie, let's complete this uh, unholy triumvirate. What, what's your third book? Okay, my third book is Things Have Gotten Worse Since We Last Spoke. It's a really long title. Eric LaRocca is just like magical when it comes to really long titles. He has a new one called The Strange Thing We Become and Other Dark Tales. He has another book that I read, which was the first book of his that I read called A Bright Enchanted Suffering. Um... Eric LaRocca is an enigma. He is a special, special, magical, insane 
I'll borrow Emily's word, fucked up person in his brain. I mean, I don't know where these stories come from, but they come from a very, very dark, weird, unexpected place. His storytelling makes me want to jump up on my bed after I finish reading and like clap and applaud whoever could be listening at two in the morning when I'm up too late reading a book. This this particular novella starts off in a very unexpected, tame, um, just drab almost way where you're just kind of like, how could this possibly wind up as a horror novella? But it's just two women who find each other on a chat room and are talking about um, a, a, an item that's for sale. And their emails between each other just kind of spiral into a, a dark place. And I really can't, this is another one where you really just can't say too much more about it because it's all about the reader discovery and it's all about just being a fly on the wall, watching this relationship develop between these two women. Um, there's just scenes also that I will say, like just you think about long after you've read them where you're like processing your brain is just kind of doing this like rainbow wheel spinning when you <laughs> when something's loading. You know, I'm just thinking about that book. What the hell? Like you just, it just, it's mind blowing. I don't know how he, he's totally original, Eric LaRocca. There's no, there's no one on the market right now writing books like Eric LaRocca at all. I I think he's, I, you know, I, I admittedly, I only just bought things have gotten worse, but, uh, and I haven't, I haven't quite delved into it yet, but I really think that he is, he has that shine on him, right? Like he's one of those authors that's going to be big and he's going to be around for a long time. Yes, I fully agree. And just like, you know, secretly, there's always secret things going on in the industry behind the scenes that we're not allowed to talk about. Um, and I do work really closely with some people who are in the movie making industry. And there's just certain authors when you read their work and you can visually see it as a movie playing out. And yeah, he just moves my radar, moves the needle. Well, let me ask you a question, Sadie. What have you done today to deserve your eyes? (laughs) Don't say that to me. (laughs) (laughs) That, I mean, I read that in the copy for the book and that line alone sold me. I was like, that, I want that. Yes. And that's what I'm saying about Eric is like, I don't know where he comes up with these things. There's just, there's something about him. There's something about his storytelling that is just not standard. It's not, it's, it's not, I don't even know. I don't have words. (laughs) I agree. This is me speaking directly to the listeners now. So Eric's episode went live, I think three weeks ago from when you're hearing this. Um, And I want to know who out there now knows about the little Christ. (laughs) And that's all I will say. But you've had three weeks to find out what the little Christ is. Uh, And if not, well, you're missing out on one of the most audacious, horrifying moments in horror of, of, of recent years. Um, I couldn't agree with you more, Sadie. That that book would have made my list if you hadn't already kind of stolen it. I, I read it too late, else I would have made sure it was on my list. <laughs> Sorry. 
there is nothing else like it. It's shocking and weirdly beautiful in its in its horridness, I, I suppose. Yeah, and I hate to say, I hate to call things like too early. You know, I don't want to like put pressure on Eric in any measure, but he is definitely one to watch because everything I've ever read from him, I'm that book I do, I talked about earlier, which I don't think is actually for sale anymore because I think he's re-releasing some of the stories that were in this collection, but it's it's called A Bright Enchanted Suffering and there was a few stories in there and every single story mm-hmm. blew my mind in the same way where it was just like he took a very ordinary situation and dialed it to like the extreme. So, I mean, he is definitely one to watch. And he's also growing as a writer because off the back of reading that, I went and got some of his other stuff and read that as well. And he won't mind me saying this because I said it to him on air. I read um, his previous novella, A Starving Ghost in Every Thread. Mm -hmm. As much as I really admired the ambition of that story and the imagination on display, the level of delivery has just become so much stronger in in the gap between writing that and writing um, things have gotten worse. So if for whatever reason anyone has read some of Eric's previous stuff and thought, maybe not for me, definitely give things have gotten worse a chance because it's like a, a writer who has kind of gone through his becoming and now knows what he wants to hurt you with. You know, <laughs> I, I just think it's, yeah, it is, it is, it's truly a remarkable book. A little secret industry news, because I, I work for uh, a publisher called Stygian Sky Media. Um, we actually just signed a contract with Eric LaRocca today, so I don't mind saying this, um, for Starving Ghosts and Every Thread, a re-release, and it's going to have another new novella tied in with it, new cover and everything. So we're really excited about that. Wonderful. It's packed with imagination, packed with just the craziest ideas, that novella. Um, far less restrained, I would say, than things have gotten worse. It, it, reading them in tandem feels like watching a, re- a writer grow into something else. I don't know. He's just, he, like you say, he's going to be a name for the future, isn't he? He really is. Absolutely. Over to you, Emily. What's your last pick? So, uh, not you know, not dissimilar from Eric LaRocca. Uh, my third pick is Haley Piper's "Unfortunate Elements of My Anatomy," um, and Haley, much like Eric, is one of those authors who you know just started to be on my radar over the past year, and is is really, I think, on the verge of just exploding. She's got uh, this story collection that already came out earlier this year. She's got Queen of Teeth coming out later this year. She's got, you know, she's just popping up everywhere. And um, this story collection is really, really special, I think. It is vital and it's funny and not, not in a not necessarily in a laugh out loud way, but in a sort of a wry and witty way where, you know, writers who can pull that off really have a way of making you feel like you're in on the joke, um, which I love, you know, so I've, I was recently reading uh, pet, uh, not pet cemetery, um, Salem's lot for the first time by Stephen King and was sort of observing to myself that he's very, very good at that. And she has that same spark, I think. And the stories in unfortunate elements of my anatomy are, linked not in a not in a way that's you know sort of on the surface but they're linked in 
mood and in sort of tone in a way that really works for me. I, I sometimes have trouble with story collections where there's no sort of through line of, uh, you know, theme or intent and you're just sort of thrown, you know, from, from one thing to the next. And sometimes that works, but, but I have, uh, I, I find that I, I resonate much more with books like this where there's this through line of, you know, sort of anger and becoming and femininity and, and, and sort of cosmic horror and body horror. And it, it is just a, a fascinating collection that I'm still sort of chewing over. You know, I still like there, there are moments where I, I find that I want to, you know, pick up, uh, let's say the first story, which is, is sort of about, a a, a woman question mark who uh, is catcalled, you know, hit on by a stranger in public and, and what happens next. And it was one of those, it, it was sort of a, 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 a story where I, I was reading it and I was going, how have I never read this story before? Like, which is something that I, I think the best authors can do is, is present something new to you, present something that really kind of blows your mind, but that at the same time, you're like, how, how did nobody else ever think of this? How did nobody else ever get to this? It's so vital and, and uh, interesting and fucked up. Uh, anyway, I don't want to say anything more about it. That particular story, which is the one I kind of keep coming back to, but it, it's in, in sort of my exploration of, you know, women in horror, this is one of the more sort of standout examples I've come across in the last couple of years. Yeah. Haley Piper is amazing. Um, and I think that a short story collection, this is her first short story collection is a great way to introduce yourself to her work because it is so versatile. Um, like Emily mentioned, it jumps from one genre to another per story. I mean, you get fairy tales and humor and horror and all sorts of things. So totally recommend that too. So Emily is a a writer I've not yet read, though as you say, she is everywhere. So I just need to find the time. The problem I have is that I have to, I can only read the books of people coming on the show. So I have to basically wait till someone's got a new book coming out, get them on the show and then use that as an excuse to read everything they've done, <laughs> um, which I would, I would definitely do with Haley at some point because Going back to like something like Benny Rose, The Cannibal King, just I love urban legend style horror, and even that sounds like it would float my boat, you know. So um, I do want to give it a go. But I've heard her speak about her work on a number of other podcasts, things like Books in the Freezer and stuff like that. And she's clearly someone who has a real intent with her fiction, from what I've heard anyway, and kind of knows what she wants to say. And like you said, there's a through line to what she's doing, which... Yeah, that does appeal yeah, to me. I, I think she's very similar to Eric in that in that way, where she's like, I know what I want to say, and I know what I want to do to the reader, um, which I really admire mm -hmm. that that sense of clarity in a writer. Is she someone else that we think will, will break through into the the big leagues? Yeah, one hundred percent. I really hope so. What's the title of that book again, Emily? Just in case someone missed it. Unfortunate Elements of My Anatomy by Haley Piper. It's just, just a great title. <laughs> um, right. I, I will kind of finish off by also talking about a short story collection. And simply put, if I, if I said before that Will Dean's Last Thing to Burn is, is the, the best book I've read in years, then 
Gemma Files is In That Endlessness Our End without a doubt scared me more than any book I've read this year. Now, my Patreon listeners may have heard some of this, so I'll try and at least say different things about it. Um, basically, I think Gemma Files is going through my post to work to work out what, what really frightens me. Because she has this habit of writing a story which touches upon a kind of pressure point in my brain that is not only specific to me, but specific to the time in which I read the story. So I'll give you, for instance, I I have quite a lot of anxiety around the night time. I, I have kind of like waking confusion and I have strengths if I wake up in a panic or wake up and my character what's real and what's not. And I, I become quite, I get kind of like sensory overload in the night where if I hear like a, 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 low, a low hum, for example, I will be obsessed by it and can't sleep. And I, yeah, I basically become a bit odd in the in the night whom among us well indeed why else would we do this um in on the day that i was experiencing tinnitus for the first time Gemma files hit with a story called the puppet motel which begins by saying if you hear the hum i'm paraphrasing but if you hear the hum i have one piece of advice for you just fucking run oh fuck <laughs> And I, I and I, I I read that the night after I'd had a sleepless night because of tinnitus, and I was I literally threw the book across and like fuck that, and I had to like <laughs> pick it up the day after. Um, there's another story in there called Venio, which basically starts off by saying, "I'm going to tell you something, and once you know it, you can't unknow it, and it will then come for you." Because listen to this line: "Nothing is more dangerous than an empty head." Oh my god. <laughs> And it's this idea that this story is going to infect you with something that will fright, that will ruin your life, basically. It's so intrusive. <laughs> oh, like, it's like it's like an it's like an assault. Um, and then then there's a story called "Come Closer," which basically comes up with an idea that is more frightening than dying in your sleep. And that's all I'll say. And and the final paragraph, the final situation that she presents in that story, is the only thing I've ever read which has genuinely made me afraid to go to sleep. Mm -hmm. I'm a 37-year-old man. I know what's real and what's not real. You know, I'm I'm not, I I know where these these lines are, but I was terrified. Yeah, but but do you though? (laughs) Do you? Are you sure? Don't start with me. Every story is is a hit. Everyone, there there are also, there are fun ones. There's, There's one about a pandemic um, the weirdest pandemic pandemic ever, where basically people die because another version of you rips itself free of your body. Amazing. Uh, and there's a story in which this, because because it's so quintessentially Canadian as well. And there's a story in which this this family travel north to the Great North Woods in Ontario um, to be visited by the, the 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 bat demon, which is the great ancestor of their family. Um, so you've got fun stuff as well. It's not all doom and gloom and neurosis and existential dread, but it's all effective. It's either makes you smile or makes you whimper. And it's called In the Endlessness Our End by Gemma Files. And yeah, I have nothing more to say about it than I never, ever want to read it again. But I'm so glad that I did. Well, now I'm going to read it. <laughs> That's very high praise. Yes. 
wonderful. I love those. I love those books that it's it's only ever happened to me a few times too when I I'm reading something and I'm like, oh no, I can't get up off the couch and go to bed because I'm I'm scared shitless. Um, most recently, it was the Twisted Ones by T. Kingfisher, um, no. which the whole thing where you, the the one of the horror tropes that frightens me the most is you look out a window or a peephole or a door at night and something is looking back in at you. It's the reason I never want to like have a bedroom on the first floor, you know, and that happens at sort of a pivotal moment in that book. And I was just like, nope, I, I can't read any more of this, but I also cannot move from this one pool of light from the one lamp I had left <laughs> yeah. on in the living room. I mean, but this is why this is why we read horror, right? Like, even though we're saying like, oh, it made me it kept me up at night or it freaked me out or like it lives in my brain. Like, and then when we talk about it and people are like, yeah, yeah, that's what I want. Give that to me. Why are we so weird? But like, this is what we want. This is what horror does to us. It like, you know, moves us to these places that we can't get anywhere else. And it's a good way to immediately identify your people, too. Yeah. I mean, I've somehow married a woman who doesn't like horror. I mean, and, and she she's fabulous, but she's the only one. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, be, beyond that, like, don't come to me saying you don't like horror or you don't get it. Or people who say, like, why would you watch that? I'll just fuck mm-hmm. off, right? Like, we're yeah. clearly not we, – we, we are not made to be friends. Um yeah, but yeah, The Twisted Ones by T. Kingfisher. The only book I've ever read with a jump scare in it. Right? Oh my God. Cherie Sh- Priest's uh, The Family Plot ends on a jump scare. And that was the first time I was like, I didn't know you could do that in prose. Yeah, and it's great, isn't it? I love that too. So we talked about our three highlights there. Let's just quickly run through and relist them in case listeners have forgotten what we said. So I'll start. The, the three I mentioned were Last One at the Party by Bethany Clift, The Last Thing to Burn by Will Dean, and the collection In the Endlessness, Our End by Gemma Files. For me, it was Goddess of Filth by V. Castro, Star Eater by Kirsten Hall, that's K-E-R-S-T-I-N, and Unfortunate Elements of My Anatomy by Haley Piper. Okay, and my three were Hearts, Strange and Dreadful by Tim McGregor, Children of Chicago by Cynthia Paleo, and Things Have Gotten Worse Since We Last Spoke by Eric LaRocca. That is a reading list for the summer for everyone. But we're only halfway through the year, and there's a lot yet to come, and it seems a a good time to discuss a few things that we think may be future highlights in the next six months. So who wants to start? Who's got a book coming out between now and January that they are really looking forward to? Oh God, I I have so many, but if I really had to narrow it down, uh, the first one for me is uh, Revelator by Daryl Gregory. And that's out in the US in August. Um, it is... One of the best Southern Gothic novels I've ever read, um, and one of the best things I've read in the last five years, it is the story of a Prohibition-era tiny backwoods community in the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee, and 
this family of women who commune with their family's god under the mountain. And the god under the mountain, who they call Ghost Daddy, is this <laughs> creature who... I, Without getting too much into it, it's it's one of the only sort of eldritch tentacle beasts I've ever crum- come across in horror fiction that wasn't rapey, you know, because um, that's sort of a, an obvious stand-in thematically. But it's it's this book about family and inheritance and the way that men come in and try to take control of women's stories and it is brilliant and the writing is absolutely beautiful revelator and when's that out august august right that is one i wasn't aware of so i will have to keep an eye out for that yeah it's from uh, i believe it's coming out from knopf okay i mean i love daryl gregory i love um we are all completely fine Yes. Oh, it's such a great book. He's he's just kind of leveled up in terms of, of prose writing in a really impressive way. Right. Okay. Definitely love that one up. What about you, Sadie? Um, so with these books, I didn't necessarily read all of them. I'm just kind of looking forward to them. And some of them I have read. But I am looking forward to Immortelle um, by Catherine McCarthy, which is out um, mid-July. Um, and Catherine McCarthy... I've only read short stories from her, um, and I've always just loved and adored them. I love her storytelling voice, and this is a collection that's coming out through um, Off Limits, which is the same publisher that published that Tim McGregor book I was talking about earlier in the show. Um, Can I go ahead and just list a few? Of course, yeah. Okay. Um, And then also... The Book of Accidents, Um, definitely looking forward to people um, weighing in on that one. I I feel like sometimes I get sent um, an advanced reading copy so soon, and then I'm left out of the conversation when it actually (laughs) releases. But I did read this on a vacation um, earlier this year and really enjoyed it because I feel like uh, Chuck Wendig has really just thrown the gauntlet down as far as like, I'm a horror writer, damn it. Um, like, you know, he's, he's always just kind of pushed into these science fiction corners with his star Wars stuff and, and various different other things he does. But I mean, the book of accidents is definitely just straight horror in my opinion. I can't wait to read this book. I cannot wait. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great. And if you're a Miriam Black fan, you know, I've always said that the Miriam Black series by Chuck Wendig is just, it's basically horror, but it wasn't marketed that way. But it's very supernatural, and, and this one has all those elements too. So look for that. It's very exciting. And I'm also looking forward to, in July, um, Ronald Malfi's book comes out, Come With Me, um, which is a small town horror and psychologically, um, you know, riffing off some some psychological horror thriller. Um, Nightworms is going to be, we're going to be carrying that one in August. Uh, So I'm really excited to see that in July. Um, And I've only really even touched July. So I'll just, I'll go ahead and pass it off. And I can do some other books that are coming later. If I can just list just a couple more, you know, I, I would need another hour to talk about all of these. But you know, any any year where we get new Brian Evanson is a great year. Yeah, I agree. Um, he's got the glassy burning floor of hell coming out in, I think that's also August. 
new Stephen Graham Jones in August, My Heart is a Chainsaw, which again is one of those books that, you know, you, you go into it thinking it's one thing and then it totally flips the script on you. Um, Cackle by Rachel Harrison, her debut novel, uh, came out just before the pandemic, which was such a shame because all of the attention was on, you know, COVID and lockdown. And her her debut novel, The Return, was this incredibly unsettling and and just weird and wild novel about women's friendships. And her second novel, Cackle, is also about women's friendships, but in a very different mode. And it's sort of uh, about women's power and witches and a friendly little spider named Ralph. And it's, it's, it veers a little more towards cozy horror, but it's still very much about, you know, what it is to be a, you know, millennial woman in America today. And I just, I, I read it in a day. I tore through it. It's wonderful. Um, and I'm really excited to read Reprieve by James Han Matson, uh, which is sort of a, social horror uh set in an extreme haunted house experience and i haven't read it yet but i it's it's really like hitting everything i'm reading about it is hitting all of my buttons you've all named books that are on my list sorry neil (laughs) just just to no no not at all and it shows it shows we are of one mind so just to titillate the listeners chuck wendig the book of accidents chuck's on the show in two weeks I need to read that book between now and then. I'm, I'm up against it. So Chuck's on the show in two weeks. Um, who else did we mention? Uh, Ronald Malfi is on the show the week after to talk about Come With Me. Stephen Graham Jones is coming on the show in late August to talk about My Heart is a Chainsaw. Brian Evanson is on the show. Uh, who else? Who else? Who else have we mentioned? I want to get Rachel Harrison back on the show because I also loved The Return and Cackle sounds like great fun. Um, and I'm currently reaching out to Bloomsbury here in the UK to get James Han Matson on the show to talk about Reprieve. So we are very much of one mind. I, I'm, we're looking at work, working with these same people and I want to get them on and talk about their books. The only things I'd add to that, really, I mean, again, we could take another hour to talk about this. Uh, Richard Chismar's Chasing the Boogeyman sounds... Uh, sorry, Boogeyman sounds like a sort of seventies disco character. <laughs> I love the way you say that too, Boogeyman. <laughs> I can't pronounce that word in an English accent. It sounds ridiculous. How, do, how is it, Boogeyman, Boogeyman? What just? How the hell do you say it? We say Boogeyman. We just say Boogeyman. Yeah, like he, <laughs> the man that boogies. Chasing him, right? That he sat. That book sounds fascinating because it's kind of a weird blend of fiction, memoir, and true crime. The only thing I've heard like it is um, something like Luna Park by Brace and Ellis, which blends fake memoir with real life and then with full-on fiction. It seems to be doing that. It sounds just really interesting. I'm also really fascinated by the idea of Kim Newman's Something More Than Night. I'm not quite sure if people in the US are aware of Kim Newman. He's probably Britain's most prominent horror film critic he's seen everything if you want to talk about you know sharknado 3 trust me kim has seen it and written an essay about it and he also wrote anno dracula the the series of kind of meta it kind of does for horror what the league of extraordinary gentlemen did for science fiction and adventure Uh, he's got a new book out called something more than night which 
is a story set in 1930s Hollywood in which the main characters, from what I can see, are Raymond Chandler and Boris Karloff teaming together to to fight evil. So, yeah, it sounds like a riot. That sounds wonderful. He is he is known here. I think he's not as as prominent as he is in the UK, but he is, you know, you'll find him on a Barnes and Noble shelf in in the US. Yeah, he wrote a phenomenal survey of of um, horror cinema called Nightmare Movies. It's like a thousand pages long and the very definition of encyclopedic. He will be he will be a fascinating guest. I may I may need to kind of find a way to shut him up because he's got so much to say. But yeah, I can't wait to talk to him about his book. A great problem to have. Indeed. It's rare someone talks more than me, so um, it could be useful. It's a hell of a, of a year to come. It almost feels like we haven't even reached kind of, you know, half of the major titles of the year. No, at all. We didn't even scratch the surface. <laughs> I know. And listen, I would be I would be remiss if I didn't give a quick shout out to Nightfire. Uh, our first season's worth of books will start hitting shelves in September. And we've got a reissue of Certain Dark Things from Sylvia Moreno Garcia. We've got Nothing But Blackened Teeth, which is a, a just deeply grimy, horrifying novella from Cass Caw about, you know, five assholes who go to a mansion and have a bad time. <laughs> it, is, it is so that. <laughs> You know, the, the Last House on Needless Street, of course, which we discussed, a reissue of Hex by Thomas Olda Hoyvelt, um, Dark Stars, which is a collection of novelettes edited by John Taff. Um, it's it's a really great inaugural season, and I'm I'm very, very excited about it. Yeah, you guys are doing good stuff. And they're, they're really nice looking books as well. Like the cover of uh, Nothing But Black and Teeth is, is, if there wasn't a war for cover of the year, that has got to win it. It's it's horrifying. Yeah, it is very horrifying. Oh my God, right? <laughs> it's, you know, it, it started to, uh, apparently we got some messages about it. You know, there were, there was a, a banner ad on Edelweiss, which is, uh, if your listeners don't know, it's a portal for booksellers to sort of get access to early information about uh, publishers' catalogs. And there was a banner ad for it on Edelweiss, and people were were sort of reacting like, this this scared the shit out of me. I was not expecting this when the page yeah, looked. I actually, I actually tweeted the artist just to say, round of applause. You know what I mean? It's, this is so, it's so good. That and the cover of Eric Oh, gosh. Uh, Things have gotten worse. Yeah, that one. Is, oh, yes. It really is. And it just kind of uh, went viral when the cover, cover release uh, went out. Because, I mean, when you look at it, you really just can't stop. You have to, like, really pour over the details. And it's 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 really just, like, I don't know. It's almost nauseating. Like, I looked at it up close. And it's got a woman's face in and her head is just kind of smeared upward with the paint. And when you look closer at the detail, it's actually gross. Like, I, I don't know. It, it just evokes so much before you even mm -hmm. open it and get into the story, which is then also like, what the hell? Before we finish up, it can't all be books. After all, it's been a very long pandemic. So, um, what else have we filled our time with in the last six months? Uh, movies, TV, games, podcasts. What have you guys enjoyed um, off the page in 2021? 
Um, I'll go ahead and start. I mean, my husband and I do like watching TV, um, you know, just to kind of like chill at the end of the night and have a cocktail or something. We really enjoy Apple TV Plus. We were just talking about all the different shows that we've watched on that sh- on that platform. Um, so we're watching Lisey's story um, right now, but we also enjoyed C, which is start with stars uh, Jason Moema, and it's kind of like a weird, it's like a weird dystopian society where nobody has eyesight, um, nobody can see except uh, Jason Moema's character has children who are born with vision, and it's just really an awesome show. And season two is coming out in August. Um, and then we also were watching Servant. Um, so we watched the first and second season in the last year and a half. Um, and that's directed by M. Night Shalaman. I also, we watched Mayor of Easttown, which is on HBO Max. Just to take you, just to take you back, Sadie, how is Lisey's story going? Oh my God. So Lisey's story is like Stephen King's romance novel. Um, it's kind of like a big, big book about grief and loss and struggling through those emotions, those big emotions. And Lisey's story, the, the show, Stephen King did the screenplay. And you can tell that his fingerprints are all over it. And it's just such a joy for a fan of the novel and then just Stephen King in general. Um, Juliana Moore is in it and Clive Owen, who I love. And it's just this last episode, episode four, just wrecked us. Like my husband had, he doesn't read, um, very often. And so he hasn't read this book, but just to engage with him, um, in this story, it's just really been a treat, but it's also really visceral. There's, there's, there's the last episode was super brutal. Um, but Juliana Moore is doing a good job. Yeah, I love it. I'm intrigued because it's it's by far and away my least favorite King novel, and I know it's it's his favorite of his novels. Um, but I am intrigued by the show because I think the visuals of the the pool and you know the stuff that if you've read it, you know what I'm talking about. Um, it, it, it I imagine it, it could make quite a great show. Um, so I am intrigued to give it a go. You know, no slight on you, Neil, at all. But it's so interesting to me how Stephen King's love stories just don't get any attention from certain fan base. Like, like everyone always says their least favorite book in the Dark Tower series is Wizard and Glass, which is definitely his most romantic one. Oh, just to jump in, Wizard and Glass is my second favorite King book generally. Okay, well then you just redeemed yourself because that one is Oh Wizard Wizard and Wizard and Glass is the most Oh god it hurts my heart right? to think about it. Bird and but what is it? It hurts my heart too. That's how I feel about Lisey's story. Bird and bear and hair and fish. Those words just like oh god. Um and yes. I also probably my third favourite King novel is eleven twenty two sixty three, which is just just completely a love story, you know. I uh, my problem with my problem with Lisa's story is that the messing around with the bull stuff of the language and the fact that we Ew. have to see this man get hit with a shovel from three different perspectives <laughs> and I just I find it a frustrating book. It's not the romance at all, but <laughs> I, I, I will meet you halfway on Mayor of Easttown because that is an absolute masterpiece of a show. Yeah, I love that show. I love love her anyway. 
her name just fell out of my head. Kate Winslet. What about you, Emily? What have you been enjoying? Well, as much as I love reading horror, I have found that the only TV I've really been able to watch since the start of the pandemic has been comedy. Uh, so I've been doing a lot of binging of, you know, Ted Lasso, of uh, Mythic Quest, which is an incredible show. Uh, watched It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia for the first time straight through. Um, but then movies, I'm definitely airing on the sort of, you know, action adventure, thriller, horror side of things. Um, one of my, well, two of the best things I've watched in the last six months are The Vast of Night, which is an, a very stylishly made indie sort of sci-fi horror-ish movie uh, about a small town radio operator or radio host who starts getting calls from people about weird lights in the sky. And that basically, you know, the aliens have come and it's, it's just masterfully made um, and acted and like tragic and heartbreaking and beautiful to look at. And I also really loved uh, the Block Island Sound on Netflix, which is another alien movie, but with a sort of much more contemporary horror style, um, deeply, deeply creepy and some like really indelible images that I'm still thinking about. And I just discovered that a movie I've been wanting to watch, but hadn't been able to sort of track down a source for, it's a, a Russian horror movie called Super Deep. Uh, has just hit Shudder. So I will be watching that possibly tonight. It is a sort of, you know, adventure horror story about a group of scientists who go into a, a super deep borehole um, in, you know, sort of the Russian tundra, which is, you know, a research station where they've drilled as far as possible into the Earth's core. <laughs> and uh, I saw somebody on Twitter talking about it as... The thing meets Tarkovsky, which is you know you could not you could not put together a better elevator pitch uh, for me. You know that sort of body <laughs> horror, beautifully art directed body horror um, is what made Annihilation such a pleasure to watch. Even if it was like I have a lot of thoughts about that movie. I loved it, but I have a lot of thoughts about it as an adaptation. And uh, Super Deep is supposed to be just really, you know, really well executed and really, you know, sort of monumental body horror. So I'm looking forward to that one a lot. Incredible. If you want to really see The Thing meets Tarkovsky, there's also a film called Sputnik that's on Netflix, um, which is exactly that. It, like it, it, that. I haven't thought of that comparison, but it is exactly that. Uh, but I will check out Super Deep. I haven't, I haven't heard of it. Um, I've just just got a Shudder subscription recently, so I'm gonna I'm working my way through all the stuff I've missed. I'm too I'm too afraid to watch Host. <laughs> uh, the only thing I will add to what you guys have said is is a film that I uh, well actually two films that I want everyone to watch. His House, the oh yes, <gasps> yes, the British horror film on Netflix about it, it takes the immigration. Some would say immigration crisis. I would say they're they're wrong, and I would say you know immigration obligation. It takes on that issue and turns into a haunted house story, which is about again we talked to come full circle. It's about trauma and it's about the horrors of war that follow you wherever you go, in, even if you leave for a different country. Um, but it's done through this very stylistic, very very frightening haunted house story. It's brilliant. 
so scary. I had to stop watching it and carry on the morning after. Me too. It is utterly terrifying and it has mm-hmm. a amazing performances. Um, I think the lead actor's name is uh, Shope Disu and he's also in Gangs of London, which is wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and Wonmi Musaku, I think, is the female lead, and she was in Lovecraft Country on HBO last year. She played uh, Ruby, the sister, and it is it has one of one of the most frightening sort of subversions of you know something's there when the lights off, but when you turn the light on, it's not there anymore, and it's just sort of flips that on its head, and it's really well made, and I'm really excited to see what that director does next. Mm, Indeed. There's a twist in that film that so profoundly shocked me, I sat up in an empty house and went, what? Yep. (laughs) It's, it's, It's masterful. And the other film I'd mention, which is a film that I'm mentioning wherever I can, if anyone will ever talk to me about this film, I will talk about it. And it's on Netflix, and it's a Spanish language film and it's called The Platform. And I'm astonished that it's not already in the pantheon of great horror movies. Like, I, I just simply don't get how this film is not being talked about by everyone in the industry. Um, My son was talking about it to me. Well, your son is an enlightened soul. <laughs> I mean, your son also got a thumbs up from Stephen King for his illustrations, so... Uh, yeah, he's still floating on that. The, the last yes, thing he needs is me so saying well cool, done, Sadie. but still, I will throw my little like well done into the mix. Ask him if you like the platform, because um, it's... A- well, I have two sons. I have two sons. The The one that got a tweeted by Stephen King is 15, and he does watch a lot of horror, but not as much as my 24-year-old. My 24-year-old, I would say, is a horror connoisseur and watches it a lot, and just kind of like fields horror for my husband and I, you know, he'll filter it out for us and be like, okay, yes, this one watch, this one's too much for you. This one, no, you know, because we're, we're horror babies Mm. when it comes to the visuals. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Well, the platform is an absolutely insane kind of social satire about people locked in this tower block that is like 400 stories high. It's an empty cell. They have nothing apart from a roommate. Um, And there is a hole in the floor. And at the same time every day, a platform descends through this hole in the floor and it carries a feast. And if everyone just took the little bit of food they wanted, it would feed everyone all the way down to the the basement. But because we're humans and we're selfish and we're awful, the, the top 10 floors gorge themselves so the bottom floors starve. The twist is, every so often... You wake up in a different, randomly allocated cell. So it's this brutally cruel metaphor for social inequality, basically. Yeah. And 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 about the well, it's about the way that, like, you know, you shat on me, so now I'm above you. I'm going to shit on you, and it's just about if we just. Oh wow. Yeah, it's the best one I've seen in forever. I just can't believe no one is talking about it. So everyone listening, I think I've probably said it before a dozen times on this show, but. If you haven't yet, go and watch the platform. The one thing that I feel like we need to talk about really quick, though, is like 
there's way too many streaming services. I mean, I think what ended up happening is we were all so sick of cable and satellite and all this stuff. And we, we were like, we want to watch what we want to watch. Like, you know, give us, give us a menu and we can kind of pick and choose what we want. Well, we end up got, we were like inundated with streaming services. I mean, <laughs> it's just like, there's way too many. I can't afford like mm-hmm. a shutter and, and all the things, you know, like there's too many. And it's a pressure. It's a pressure to be abreast of the cultural conversation all the time. Have you seen this? No, I haven't seen you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree. I, 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 I'm going to sound like a Luddite now, but I miss wa- water cooler television. I miss the, the thing that you sitting down, w- knowing that yeah. in a way you are watching this thing community yeah. with the country who are all watching at 9pm on a Monday night. I, I miss that a little bit. Absolutely same. I feel like something is lost when Netflix dump an entire series, you know, when you can watch, you can binge all 10 episodes if you want. Yes, I totally agree with you. And it's ruining the experience for people who don't have time to sit and watch it in one lump because people are posting spoilers like the day of. You're like, how in the hell did you watch all 10 episodes in one freaking day and then get on Twitter and yeah. spoil it for everyone else? It's so rude. I mean, so basically, to say what you're saying is social media is a nightmare, and we should stop with streaming services. So essentially, essentially, let's go back to the '90s. We're all happier then. Yeah, just read a fucking book, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Yep, I have a I have a, ref- a group chat where the refrain when somebody really needs to log off is "Go outside and touch some grass." So <laughs> I support bringing a book and going outside and touching some grass. Amen. That seems a, a perfect place to leave it, guys. We've talked at length about the things we love, and I just hope that other people find it as enthralling as we do. Um, I always I always end these conversations by asking my guests two very quick questions, and I don't see why I shouldn't ask you as well. So, so here goes. We'll start with you first, Sadie. If you could name one book for my listeners to, to go away and read, what would it be? Oh my God. The worst question in the history of the world. Out of all the books that I've ever read, yeah. one book that your listeners yeah. should read. Okay. That's evil. <laughs> Shit. No, Emily, if you have one off the top of your head, you go first. I do. Do it. It is, I, I mentioned it earlier, but it is The Library at Mount Char by Scott Hawkins. It is one of my favorite, like easily top five favorite books of all time. Uh, And again, one of those weird amalgamations of dark fantasy and horror elements and sort of cosmic weirdness and moments of incredible humor and a really like strong, empathetic heart at the center of it. Beautifully written. I really hope we get something else from him someday. I just, I, I cannot say enough good things about it. And it's one of those books that when I was a bookseller pre-pandemic, you know, the store didn't stock. So I ordered it in special and just hand sold the fuck out of it. I just was pressing it into everyone's hands I could. Um, and I've done that to friends. I've done that to family. And I've got sort of a little, a little cult of uh, Mount Char fans going now. Awesome. It is a really good book. I love that book. Um, okay. I did decide on what book I was going to choose. 
because coming of age horror and um, that whole kids growing up, like you said, Neil, with your favorite book being It by Stephen King. Did you say that was your favorite book? I did, yeah. Yeah, so it's one of my favorites too. Um, and I recently discovered Robert McCammon only like three years ago. Um, and I, the first book of his that I read was called Boy's Life. And it is probably my favorite book next to It by Stephen King. And it is coming of age. It's not necessarily horror, but it is broken down into like four different seasons of one boy's life. Um, and it's just beautiful. It's magical. You've put a smile on my face, Sadie, because that's one of my favorite books. You know, you, we, we all have books, I think, where we've attached not just a memory to the to the words, but to the experience of reading it. Yes. I, I spent a year living in, in Geneva, in Switzerland. Um, and I was actually, I was working as a nanny for a little German boy. Weird period of my life. Um, <laughs> on my days off, I would cycle down to Lake Geneva and sit on the rocks at the side and just dive in and swim. And over a long summer weekend, I sat on those rocks and read Boy's Life by Robert McCammon. And it remains probably the most memorable, tactile reading experience of my life. It's an absolutely magical book. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. I love that. That's great. And the last question, guys, that I ask everyone, and we'll go in reverse order this time, I will ask you first, Emily. What truly scares you? What truly scares me? What truly scares me is everyone I love forgetting I exist. Like as tr- in, in terms of, you know, deep, dark fears in the dead of night, you know, sure, there's the face at the window, there's the shark, there's the, you know, uh, body horror, or there's, you know, whether or not you've, uh, you've done something today to deserve your eyes. But but the thing that really gets under my skin is any kind of any story where you wake up and nobody knows who you are anymore. And you're alone. That really, really messes with my head. I think for me, it would be what we're capable of doing to each other. Um, I, I listen to a lot of true crime and absolutely nothing that I've ever read fictionally is as terrifying as what people do to each other in real life. Um, just horrible stories of kidnapping and murder and home invasion and just human monsters basically freak the fuck out of me locking my windows and doors right i asked that question because no matter how cheerful a chat gets i always manage to kill it and make it in a really like downbeat ending you know that's (laughs) (laughs) i would expect nothing less (laughs) don't like don't like to make that things get too cheerful um Guys, this has been an absolute pleasure. I when I when I started doing this show, like I, I often say that like I can't imagine speaking to, you know, some of the people I've spoken to, Jeff Vandermeer or Tanana Reevdu or Josh Malaman. But as a a horror fan and someone who's kind of been at the fringes of this community for a while and you guys are so enshrined in your positions on the various plinths of the community, I, it's been an absolute delight to get the chance to speak to you and, and, and hear your opinions and your thoughts. So I'd like to say a massive thank you. 
Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, Neil, this is a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. And thank you for just having this podcast. It's a wonderful, I, I, the more avenues we have to talk about horror, to talk to authors, to talk to creators, the better. Yeah, I agree. And you're such a gracious host. <laughs> thank you. Well, Sadie Hartman, Emily Hughes, thank you for talking scared. Well, that was a blast. Honestly, how good is this community? It's such a friendly place considering that we are bonded by a shared love of of blood and hauntings and, and violence. <laughs> so good to speak to Emily and Sadie together. They, they really do have an exhaustive, encyclopedic knowledge of horror. If you want to really get the benefits of their expertise, hunt them out on Twitter. I mean, it couldn't be simpler. Sadie is at Sadie Hartman and Emily is at Emily Hughes. Together, they'll bring you all the books you need, and, you know, I'll do my little bit, too, from the margins. I've attached the link for Emily's much-vaunted horror books to read in 2021 article from Tor. That link's in the show notes. If you go there, you'll find every bit of horror you could possibly need across all genres and types and tones, from the biggest publishers to the smallest indie releases. It's an invaluable resource. I probably don't need to say all that because, let's face it, I'm a newbie, and if you follow me and listen to me, you're probably following them already. But on the off chance you're not, check them out. I'm not going to talk too much longer myself today because by now you've probably completed whatever dark act you're up to. I just hope our voices have helped drown out the screaming. But I am really, really, genuinely interested to hear your opinions and your highlights. Shortly following this episode's release, I'm going to put a tweet out. I'm going to tag it at the top of my feed for, let's say, a week. And I want you to tell me what your highlights of the year have been so far. Come get in touch and tag the authors if you can. We can turn it into an orgy of celebration and validation and praise because creatives are hungry beasts and they must be fed with kind words. That Twitter account is TalkScaredPod or you can email me directly at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. To explain for new listeners... Yeah, it's Talk Scared Pod on Twitter and Talking Scared Pod by email because some bastard already nabbed the Talking Scared handle on Twitter. Curse them to hell. Lastly, there's Patreon as well. You can get polls, behind-the-scenes stuff and at least two bonus episodes per month for just four British pounds or around six dollars. It all helps hugely in making this show a financially viable proposition for me, and it lets me devote more time to growing and improving what I can offer you. Patrons, I'll be dropping a Whispers episode this week with extra stuff from V Castro, Eric LaRocca, and Joel Lansdale. Um, And heads up, Joel tells a very creepy story during that conversation, and he shrugs it off completely, but it it set my imagination whirring. It's typical Lansdale. You can find the Patreon links on my social media, in the show notes, or just go to Patreon slash Talking Scared Pod. Watch this space too. 
I've got something very exciting coming soon that will hopefully allow us to build a tighter community and share our love of these, these dark books. I do hope you enjoyed this slight change of tack this week. I hope you've got at least one great book from the pile. And, and the full list of books mentioned in this episode is in the show notes. And yeah, they are legion. We'll do this again at the end of the year when I can already tell you that Chuck Wendig's The Book of Accidents will rate very highly. Chuck is on the show in two weeks talking about that. I'm back next week with Grady Hendrix and the Final Girl Support Group. But until then, fight the power. Ignore ignorant old men. Wear a mask if you damn well want to and go outside and touch some grass. More than ever, read good books. And remember, it's good to be scared.